Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I invite you this morning to join me in the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. We'll begin reading in the first verse, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes, and salute no man by the way, and into whatsoever house ye enter, first say peace be to this house, and if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it, if not, it shall turn to you again, and in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire, go not from house to house." This is a portion of the inspired record of our Lord's commission to the 70, and it has much to teach us in the church regarding the purpose of the gospel and the important work of the church in all subsequent ages. I trust the Lord would bless us today as we consider this passage together for a few moments. This chapter in Luke chapter 10 begins the major section of Luke's gospel. And it is a section that concerns our Lord Jesus' final journey from Galilee to Jerusalem where he will be crucified and die. And this particular chapter records the second of three commissions Jesus gave to his disciples in the New Testament. The first commission is in the previous chapter, Luke chapter 9, also Matthew chapter 10, and it was the commission to the twelve. You remember that's when he said, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, but go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sent out the twelve on that occasion. That's the first commission. Here's the second commission, the commission to the seventy. So first he sent out twelve, now he sends out seventy to do what he himself has been doing. You know, Jesus has been preaching himself in the cities of Galilee. But now he begins to employ his disciples to do the task. He sends them out first, uh, the group of 12, now the 70. And then we know that the gospel commission, the great commission, is in Matthew chapter 28, just before his ascension to heaven when he said, go into all the world. Now first he said, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, preach only to Jews. But now in the gospel commission, he says you're to preach in all the world, and to baptize those who believe. You're to baptize believers and to make disciples. I think it's important to notice he didn't say go make children of God. It is not the task of the gospel preacher or the church to help the Lord populate heaven. That's the work of God's grace and God's grace alone. But this is the second then of three commissions. And in some respects, it serves as a prototype for gospel preaching in every subsequent age until the end of time. Now I say in some respects, 
it serves as a prototype. Because obviously the ability to heal and to use the sign gifts that these men had. Jesus says, you're to go and heal the sick, verse 9, and heal the sick that are therein. And obviously that sign gift, that miraculous ability diminished after the apostles had died. Even when Paul wrote Timothy near the end of his life, he would say things like this, Trophimus, I have left at Miletum sick. Somebody might say, well, Paul, if you had the power to heal, why didn't you heal him? And he would tell Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Timothy apparently had a peptic stomach. And for thine often infirmities, and Paul gives him some medicinal advice, and we might wonder if Paul again, still had the ability to perform miracles, why he didn't just lay hands on Timothy and resolve his digestive issues. So the Bible teaches that the sign gifts were specific to the apostolic era. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Where there be tongues, they shall cease. And where there be miracles, they shall fade away. Now God's still in the business of doing miracles, isn't he? We trust a miracle-working God. He can circumvent natural law and can do the impossible. He can still make the sun stand still. He can still turn water into wine. He can still open the path of the Red Sea. God's still a miracle-working God. But in the apostolic age, he was working through men. They were given the supernatural ability to do miracles. And the apostle tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 that these sign gifts were given to confirm the word that they preached. In other words, the miracle itself validated the miracle worker as an authentic servant of God. They didn't have the New Testament. Paul and Peter and James and John couldn't go to Ephesians. God was using them to write the New Testament. But they couldn't prove their doctrines by saying it's written in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, God has saved us and called us. So God was verifying their preaching of the truth by giving them this capacity to work miracles. That's the point made in Hebrews 2, 3. So I say in some respects, this commission to the 70 is preparatory. It is a prototype of the gospel ministry But in that respect, it's not applicable. I don't have the power, any supernatural ability to lay hands on the sick, to raise the dead, to drink deadly poison. That was a special ability in the apostolic age. Furthermore, the command to take no money and to make no preparation, carry neither purse nor scrip. Don't carry any money with you when you go on this trip. Carry no purse, that's your wallet, your money, nor scrip, nor shoes. Now, I wore shoes this morning. I'm sure that most all of you did. But you see, in this gospel commission, he says, don't make any preparations for the necessities of life. So in that sense, that's inconsistent with later admonitions when he tells Timothy, he that will not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. So it's not wrong to plan in advance, to take money with you, to wear shoes. So in that sense, it's not a prototype of the gospel ministry. But I suggest the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage is indeed preparing his disciples for the important task of the expansion of the gospel church by delegating the task of preaching to them. He's giving them on-the-job training, and he's showing us what it will be like to represent him. So my point this morning is that this passage has much to teach us about the purpose of the gospel 
and the role of evangelism and the nature of the church's ministry in all subsequent ages after the ascension of Jesus Christ. I'm going to draw four important lessons from this passage in Luke chapter 10 this morning. And first of all, notice the importance of practicing teamwork as we preach the good news. Verse 1 says, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also and sent them two and two before his face. So 70 in groups of two, that'd be 35 pairs that he mobilized to go preach the gospel. And he sent them into every city and place whither he himself would come. So Jesus sends these teams out in preparation of Jesus coming after them on his journey down to Jerusalem. I suggest that the team idea is a merciful provision from God. Merciful. Because... Few callings are more designed to produce a feeling of loneliness as gospel ministry. You know, a minister, especially a pastor, knows the burdens and often carries the burdens of an entire congregation. He knows, at least has an inkling, he doesn't know all the details, but he has a sense of the health and the well-being of the entire church. And I suggest that there's a burden involved in that. He knows the troubled marriages he can see on people's faces when they come in burdened. And if he's wise, he takes notice of that. He understands the slippery paths of youth and often finds his heart especially burdened when he sees young people beginning to flirt with the world and to stray away. And he knows that one bad decision could complicate the rest of their lives. You know, that's a very vulnerable time in a person's life, the period of youth, those teenage years. There are some decisions that are being made there, such as what will be my life vocation and whom will I marry? You know, that's an important decision. Many of the major decisions of life are faced by people right on the cusp of maturity. It's a very vulnerable time. And with drug addiction and alcoholism and immorality, sexual perversion, and all of the different potential obstacles in their path, may I say young people need our prayers, they need our encouragement. They need good role models in the church. Then the pastor sees and he's concerned about this. So he sees the troubled marriages, the young people that are walking on the edge, too close to the edge. He sees those who are growing cold and distant to the church. He can tell when the fire begins to dampen and cool. And he sees those who are beginning to slide down the slippery slope precariously into discouragement. Sometimes, may I say, ministry can be a very lonely thing because we can't just share that. You know, I can't get up here and say, brethren, we've got so many problems. (laughs) Everything's going wrong. The devil is attacking us. Because what happens is that creates its own reality, right? Discouragement is next to a professional sin in the ministry. Now you say, well, how can you be a minister without getting discouraged from time to time? Well, you can't, but yet to publicly show that, you know, we have to be instant in season and out of season. The preacher, because he's in such a visible role, needs to go bury his sorrows, needs to give others the sunshine and tell Jesus the rest, as the poet put it. But ministry is very lonely, so what a merciful thing it was for the Lord to send them out by two and two. It's also very wise because Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9 says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. There are four reasons he gives us in this passage that two are better than one. 
The first reason is because they're more efficient in their work. They're, they have a good reward for their labor. Two can get more done than one. Many hands make light work. That's the first reason. Secondly, he says in verse 10, For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. And what he's teaching us here is that two are better than one because they can assist each other in personal difficulty. If one falls, you've got somebody to help you get up. But if you're alone, it's hard to get up on your own. The third reason that he says two are better than one is because when circumstances are unpleasant, two can help to resolve the problem. Verse 11, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? It's my favorite verse on winter nights when Sister Lori is sleeping in South Carolina. You know, sometimes she's over there on the very edge and I'm over here and I say, how can one be warm alone? <laughs> Get a little closer, you know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, two are better than one because of warmth. And by the way, we can think of warmth not only physically but spiritually. The warmth of zeal in your heart, you know. Two are better than one. When we're together, it makes me more enthusiastic, makes me more zealous. Now, when I'm all alone, you know, I can lose that sensitivity to divine things. I easily grow cold. But when I'm with God's people, you know, I come off a three-day meeting or something. I am ready to preach, ready to sing. I'm happy because two are better than one. Notice the wisdom of teamwork. Jesus sent them out by two and two. And then he says, verse 12, and if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. It gives you more strength. Reinforcements. So two are better than one. And a threefold cord is not quickly or easily broken. A threefold cord. The more the merrier is what that means. <laughs> so Jesus sent them out in teams. And you know, as you look at the Bible, have you ever noticed the numerous godly teams of ministers? You've got Moses and Aaron. Elijah and Elisha. Elijah said, Lord, I'm all alone. They've killed all your prophets, torn down all your altars, and I only remain. And God said, I'll give you somebody to help you. He gave him Elisha to be his young son in the ministry, to take the baton after he had gone home to be with the Lord. He gave him Elisha to encourage him. You've got Moses and Aaron, Elijah and Elisha, Paul and Barnabas. What a wonderful team they were as they planted and established churches in the region of Asia Minor, Galatia. And later, when Paul and Barnabas went separate ways, Paul and Timothy, and Paul and Silas. You see, he always had a teammate. And by the way, the one time you see Paul sinking into the slew of discouragement, in Acts chapter 18, when he was at Corinth, he was all alone. He had left Timothy and Silas at Thessalonica, and he's all by himself now. And uh, he's really discouraged in Acts 18. So two are better than one. And by the way, you say, well, I'm not a preacher. Well, look at the husband-wife team of Aquila and Priscilla. There's a husband-wife team who were sold out in serving the Lord. They were on the same page. Isn't that wonderful when you see a couple, a godly couple, where both husband and wife make the church and the service of Christ the priority in their life? I've known several of those around. You go to a meeting, they're there. They've made an attempt to be there, and you know they're there in the church ready to do what needs to be done. And I just am so thankful for the husband-wife teams. And by the way, that's one of the best teammates you can have is your spouse. If they're a godly spouse, what a blessing it is. 
You know, I've got a lot of friends, I have to tell you, but not a whole lot of close friends. But I've got a best friend, thank the Lord for her, that has promised to stick with me through thick and thin. And I'm so thankful for her influence in my ministry. So that's the first lesson this gives us. This commission to the 70, we can learn the importance of teamwork. My beloved, you can't make it on your own. I can't make it on my own. We need teammates, don't we? And that's how we should see our brothers and sisters in the church as teammates in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice, secondly, the importance of praying for laborers. Notice the first charge Jesus gives them in verse 2 is, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. The first thing he tells them as he sends them out is pray for the work before you. Pray that God would send laborers. The harvest truly is great. That's the big opportunity we have. The harvest is great. And my friends, as you look out at the world around us, I want to tell you God has many children in this world. And we know, don't we, that the gospel we preach won't reach them until the Lord has first quickened them, right? You know that the, that the Lord has to go in front of the preacher. Just like he opened Lydia's heart, God opened her heart that she attended to the things that were spoken by Paul. So a person must be born again before he can understand and hear and receive the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man has no interest in spiritual things. We understand that, I trust, this morning. But you see, dear friends, uh, the harvest is great. That's what God told Paul when he was in Corinth, Acts 18. He says, I have much people in this city. Paul might have looked around and seen the neon flashing lights and the immorality on Saturday nights and the gambling casinos and the debauched kind of behavior of the city of Corinth and said, well, where are they, Lord? But you see, God has already touched people's hearts in that city. And God says, Paul, the fields are white unto harvest. I want to tell you, dear friends, we may not be able to pick them out. But I believe God has many children in our vicinity. The fields are white unto harvest. There's never been a time where the good news of sovereign grace was needed any more than it is today. God has children out there who've been burdened with the false teaching of conditionalism and legalism. And it's high time, I believe, that we tell them the truth, the liberating truth that Jesus is a successful Savior. That God loved a people with an everlasting love before time began. And that Jesus Christ came to do a work and he did it. He was a perfect and successful Savior. He finished the work. I believe God has children who need to hear and understand that. Now, I can't make them understand, but if he's quickened them, I want to sow the seed. And we need, because there's such great work that needs to be done, my friends, we need to be in constant prayer that God would send laborers into his harvest. We should pray that he would burden young men to preach the gospel, that he would call them. Now, you know, it's not just something that someone decides to do one day. Well, I think I'll be a preacher so I don't have to actually work for a living. <laughs> no, that's not uh, the way that it works, dear friends. Ministry is more than just a career. It's not a career path that you can do for a few years and then get you a nice nest egg and retire and say, well, I'm not preaching anymore. I like what Elder Sammy Bryant said one time. He said, old Baptists don't retire their preachers. They retread them and put them back on the car. 
Somebody said, when do you plan to retire? When I breathe my last or when I lose my sound mind. But as long as I have a voice and any sanity at all and can take a text and deliver it even somewhat coherently, I plan, God willing, to continue to tell this old, old story of Jesus and his love. We ought to pray that he would raise up young men. And I see it among the Primitive Baptists. I see young men. I know a couple of teenagers that are exercising the ministry right now and showing great promise. I know some 20-somethings, young men who've just gotten married, who've been ordained. I know one man that's uh, in his 50s. He may be my age, maybe 60, that was just ordained a few weeks ago. But yet there are still men who feel the call. And as they exercise their gift, the church begins to recognize that he has a gift. They're edified. One of the best tests that a man's called to preach is that he actually preaches. <laughs> and he feeds people and they are benefited by it. That's one of the best ways you can determine that. And as he gets experience and they determine that he's sound in judgment and mature and sound in the faith and that he's proven himself to be uh, reliable and trustworthy, then they call for other ministers and elders to assemble to form a presbytery to set him aside for ordination. And the reason that the church, they call for the ordination, but the reason the presbytery actually does the ordination is because that man's ministry is not confined to just a local area. He's given freedom to go among the churches, you see. He's given freedom to go where the Lord leads him, where the Holy Spirit would direct him. Jesus said, pray that God would send laborers. How we need to be praying that God would raise up men who would labor, not men who would fleece the flock and live a life of luxury and ease, but men who would get their hands dirty and get down into the trenches and actually put forth great effort for the cause of Christ. We need laborers in the kingdom of God today. He says, pray that that would happen. I suggest the ministry of prayer is the least glamorous, but the most essential function of Christian discipleship in all the Bible. And whatever your personal limitations might be, financially, physically, geographically, whatever, every believer can pray for the success of the gospel. Make that, my friends, a regular part of your daily prayers. It's a very important way that you can participate in the work of the kingdom of God in the church. Perhaps as you pray that God would send labors, perhaps you might consider at some point that he may be answering your prayers by sending you. Whether in formal official ministry or in every member ministry to your friends and relatives. By the way, every believer should be an evangelist. We should all be willing and ready to tell others what great things the Lord's done for us. The Lord send people who will work hard for your church and kingdom. And maybe you are the answer to your own prayer. He's sending you, maybe into official ministry. He may have called you. In time, it will tell itself if he has. But my friends, whether he has or not called you, you are generally called, I believe, and I am as well, to speak to others about the great things that Christ has done. So what lessons can we learn from this commission to the 70? Number one, the importance of teamwork. Number two, the importance of praying for laborers. Number three, the importance of preparing for hardship. Notice verse 3. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Now, I think it's interesting that our Lord Jesus made no pretense regarding the difficult and challenging circumstances with which his servants would meet as they go out. 
He is mobilizing these teams, his 35 teams. And he says, when you go out, remember, I'm sending you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. I want to tell you, this world is a perilous place. Wolves don't generally like sheep. Well, they do. They love them. They're delicious. (laughs) But I mean, they're not good friends. They don't respect sheep, you see. And I'm telling you, dear friends, this world will eat you up and spit you out. It is not an easy place to be a follower of Christ. There are several different forms this hardship will take. Number one, opposition to the gospel. Jesus tells them, in some cities and houses you enter, they will not receive you. As you go to preach the gospel, as you go to tell others about the kingdom of God, you will be met with opposition to your message. John says it like this, 1 John 3.13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. My friends, if the world hated Jesus, and it did, we shouldn't be surprised that it rejects and hates us. The message we preach is offensive to the natural man. You know what it says? It says you can't save yourselves. It says first you need salvation. Now that's something the natural man doesn't even like to admit. It says you're a sinner. You know people don't like to be told they're sinners. That's not a good way to win friends and influence people. The best way to win friends and influence people is to say you're a VIP. You are somebody special. You deserve a break today. But the old Baptist preacher gets in the pulpit and he says that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and left in that condition we would all split hell wide open. Nobody likes to hear that. That's not palatable to the natural man. It's what Paul calls in Galatians the offense of the cross. The cross, the message of the cross is offensive to man by nature. It hurts his pride. Then it not only says you deserve to be banished forever, but you can't help yourself. You can't do enough good works. You're not a good person, and you can't become one by lifting yourself by the bootstraps. That's what the gospel message says at its beginning. And man doesn't like that. And, you know, because of that, the world opposes the true gospel. There's one name in this world that is unpopular on the city square. Do you know what it is? It's the name Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear it. They don't want you to talk about it. You ever noticed when a sportscaster is interviewing a professional ball player or a college player, and the college player, the, you know, at the end of the game says, I just want to give credit to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And they're quick to try to control that situation and try to change the subject. But they feel awkward. It makes them feel very embarrassed and awkward. That's not appropriate in this setting. It's the tension that is inherent in what we do here, propagating the good news, marvel not if the world hates you. Paul said in Acts 20, 29, after my departure, grievous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And we're talking about Jesus, his advice to his disciples that he mobilizes on this occasion to prepare for hardship. He's first told them to practice teamwork. Second, he's told them to pray for laborers. Thirdly, he said, Prepare for hardship. What you're going to do is not going to be easy. You say, I just wish we could preach and thousands would come and it would be like a citywide crusade and you'd be popular and the news media would put you on the front page with glowing headlines and everybody would love you. That's not realistic when it comes to the work of spreading the good news. The fact is, my friends, the gospel will meet with opposition at every turn. 
Paul said, grievous wolves will enter in after my departure. I like how he says that. Implying that I will be so strong while I'm here that I'm not going to let them come in without a fight. But after my departure, grievous wolves will enter in, not sparing the flock. Even of your own selves, men shall arise speaking perverse things. You see, the devil is trying to sow tares everywhere the Lord sown wheat in this world. Everywhere the work of the kingdom is ongoing, the old devil is trying to counterfeit it and trying to undermine it and trying to sabotage the kingdom of God. Not only will the minister face criticism and opposition, and by the way, criticism comes. Sometimes it comes even from your friends and loved ones. You've got to be ready for that in ministry. <laughs> now, it's no fun. I don't like it. But yet it's, it could be expected. Don't be surprised by criticism. Somebody once said a preacher needs the heart of a child, the mind of a scholar, and the hide of a rhinoceros. <laughs> and his only challenge is to toughen his hide without hardening his heart. And there's the rub. Because the more you try to toughen your hide, the more you start to get a calloused and cynical spirit about you. It's so important to keep that tender, childlike heart while you get a tough skin. But be that as it may, you're going to have opposition. But you're also going to have some personal hardships. Notice Jesus said, carry neither purse nor scrip. Now, that would be a number one reason for somebody to say, wait just a minute, hold the phone. You mean I can't take any money with me? No credit card? No debit card? No cash? How am I going to live? You see, he's sending these people out to preach. This is the beginning of the spread of his gospel. Jesus himself has been preaching it in Galilee. He's preached it in these different cities. And now he starts sending his disciples, preparing them for the work of the church after he has ascended back to heaven. This good news will be carried on by his followers. So he's preparing them. This is on-the-job training. And he tells them, when you go out, don't carry any money with you. You mean don't make any plans? Don't make any preparations? That's pretty extreme, isn't it? And don't carry any script, not only for your physical needs, but don't prepare for your messages. And Now, again, this is one way that this is inconsistent with the New Testament pastoral ministry pattern. For he would tell Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be. But early on, God promised to give them in that hour what they needed to say. He promised to direct them. And the principle is still true. Even though the details are different, the principle is still true that we should always depend on the Lord to take care of us financially, materially, physically, and spiritually, intellectually. We should depend on the Lord. Now, I need to study this book. I need to read it. I need to try to understand it. I need to try to interpret it so that it is consistent with the other truths of Holy Scripture. I need to work hard in ministry, but my beloved, may I say when it comes right down to it, it's more than just a performance when I get up here. I need to pray before I preach, Lord, give me the message and direct my mind. I don't know what the congregation needs at any given point, but he can give it. He can burden and direct me and incline me. And I, I don't always get that just right, but I, I do try to humble myself and say, Lord, you're the great shepherd of this flock. I'm just an under-shepherd, and uh, I need direction. So the principle is still true, carry neither purse. And by the way, that's also true as far as a preacher's financial sustenance. I don't think he's saying it's wrong today to make plans how you're going to feed your family. If you're a pastor, 
you have a wife, children, a home, you need to be mindful of taking care of your own, obviously, one way or another. But he says the principle is true that you need to learn how to depend on God to provide your needs. Remember that promise in Matthew 6.33, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. I trust God to take care of me if I'm doing his will. You ought to also, my friend. So prepare for hardship. There will be personal hardships. You know, Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.3, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. If you join the military, would you expect to be put up in a five-star hotel and served with room service and have 150 channels that you could flip through to entertain you at all hours of the day? And no, my friends, if you're joining the military, you're expecting to sleep on the ground, to be cold at night, to eat C-rations or K-rations. You're expecting hardship. Endure hardness as a good soldier. And he tells the preacher Timothy, Timothy, ministry's not easy. You shouldn't expect a life of luxury. By the way, if you remember the medieval period, the dark ages, you know, many of the priests, the friars, you know, and there's nothing wrong with being heavy set, but many of them would fleece the flock. You know, they were lazy. They used their position for the sake of indulging their own carnal appetites. I'm telling you, my friends, ministry is intended to be challenging. It doesn't mean you have to be an ascetic and you're, that you're holier if you'll make it that way. You know, it doesn't mean it's wrong to live in a nice house. But it does mean that you have to be ready and willing to make some sacrifices if you're going to be faithful to the Lord. A preacher needs to be willing and ready to put the Lord first rather than his retirement fund or his reputation. I'm just trying to be realistic. I know you could, we could argue both sides of this issue. But Jesus says, carry neither purse nor script. The principle is still true, that we're to focus first and foremost on preaching the kingdom of God and then trust the Lord to provide for us, okay? He says, be content with your provisions, preachers. That's what he tells them. He says, whatever house you enter, whatever they give you to eat, eat and drink such things as they give. Be content to live on the generosity of the Lord's people. And be so committed to the task at hand that you never give the appearance of worldliness or covetousness. He says, remain in that house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. If they give you something, you don't have to feel like it's a charity case. You've worked for it. They've given it to you. Be thankful for it, but be content with it. And he says, go not from house to house. Don't become busy and padding your pockets. Don't try to broaden your horizons and indulge your different opportunity. You know, don't climb every mountain and ford every stream in order to follow your dream. He says you focus on the task at hand and be content with the provision that God blesses you with through his people. And at the same time, be faithful to declare the message. Heal the sick and say unto them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. So the hardship that you need to prepare for is opposition from the outside, personal hardships regarding your daily sustenance and your natural provisions, and also the hardship of unbelief, verses 10 and 11. But into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you not. So if you go into a city and they receive you, then be content to stay there with whatever they give you. But he says, if you go into a city and they don't receive you, then go out into the streets of that city and say, even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, 
we do wipe off against you. That is, clean your shoes off and say, I'm not even going to carry this dust with me into the next city. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Notice, preach the same message. Preach the same message, even though the city will not listen. And he's telling us that you need to be ready to be courageous as an evangelist, as a preacher. Speak the same message, but remember that the Lord never promised unmitigated success. And then notice Jesus pronounces three divine woes in verses 12 and 13. I say unto you, he says, that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. And what a remarkable, surprising statement that is. Sodom. It shall be more tolerable for Sodom than for that city that rejects your ministry. Sodom was a vile, immoral city, but he said all judgment is not the same. That is, there are different degrees of judgment in this temporal sense. It shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. By the way, he's not talking about the last judgment here. That will be a judgment of individuals. This is a judgment of cities. You know, don't you, the Bible teaches God judges nations, God judges families, God judges cities. Now, he, he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained at the last day. He will judge the wicked, those on whom the blood has been applied. You know, like the Passover, those who've been redeemed, their judgment has already been. They will be passed over. The sheep on his right hand will be told, Come ye blessed of my father, but the wicked will be judged according to their works. We know that's in the last day, but here he's talking about a time when he will come to judge the cities that have rejected you. And then notice what he says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, and woe unto thee, Bethsaida. Now, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, you can look sometime at the Galilean ministry of Jesus, the map of the Holy Land, and see where Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, the other city mentions in verse 15 are. They were all seacoast cities on the Sea of Galilee. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Jesus pronounces woes upon these three cities. He says, if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, you can also find where Tyre and Sidon were. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities. And they were grossly idolatrous. Phoenician idolatry had pervaded those cities, and the Lord judged them. He says, if the things had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, now Capernaum's where the first headquarters of Jesus' ministry was. Remember, that's where Peter's wife's mother lived. It's probably where Peter and some of the fishermen lived, Capernaum. It's where Jesus first preached his first sermon in the synagogue in Capernaum, Luke chapter 4. That sovereign grace sermon when he said uh, there were many lepers in Israel in the days of, you know, of Elisha and many widows in the days of Elijah the prophet, but none of them were blessed by the Lord except a, a foreigner, you know, Naaman the Syrian and the widow of Zarephath, a Phoenician widow. Capernaum, you know, it had great promise, but yet Jesus pronounces judgment on it. He says, Thou Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, thou shalt be thrust down to hell. And he predicts the total destruction in this verse of Capernaum. A town, by the way, that has now disappeared so completely 
that its very site is a matter of archaeological debate. Archaeologists differ as to where it was actually located because Jesus' words have been fulfilled so perfectly and completely. He's talking about unbelief. You're going to meet with hardship when you go preach. People will reject it. People will disbelieve it like they've disbelieved me in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. But then he adds, he that hears you, verse 16, heareth me. And he that despiseth you despiseth me. And he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. Jesus tells his disciples here that if I've suffered such opposition from my hearers, you brethren should be prepared to encounter similar hardships. Without compromising your message, you keep telling the same message. Be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. And then he concludes by reminding them that they serve as his official envoys and ambassadors. He that hears you, hears me. That is, you have delegated authority. And by the way, I don't have any authority in and of myself. The only authority I have is this book. You know that? My opinions are no better than anybody else's. If I'm just telling you how you ought to live, you... Well, that's your opinion, Brother Mike. I've got a different idea. That's fine. But if I'm telling you what this book says, that should be authoritative to every one of us. He that hears you, Jesus says to his disciples, hears me, as long as you're preaching his word. And he that receives you receives me, and he that receives me receives him that sent me. Notice the hierarchical chain of command here. Now, my time has run out this morning, and I've given you three of the important lessons. Practice teamwork, pray for laborers, and prepare for hardship. And even though this commission to the 70 isn't precisely what gospel ministry is about today, you know, again, I don't have power to do miracles, and again, I do need to study, and I do, it's okay to prepare and to plan and to, you know, get your finances worked out and to think about that stuff. Even though it's not precisely the same, yet the principles that we still need to pray for laborers. We still need to practice teamwork and not be lone rangers. And we still need to prepare for hardship. Let's have a realistic idea of what we're doing. The best part of this sermon is in verses 17 to 24, in which he says, remember the privileges bestowed upon you. And I know some of the young folks are thinking, oh, please don't go into that yet. <laughs> you just said the clock's beating you. Uh, I'm not going to. But I tell you, what he's telling us in verses 17 to 24, the 70 returned to the Lord with joy. So he sent them out, gave them all of this counsel. They've gone out, and when they came back, the return of the 70, they said, Lord, even the devils were subject to us through your name. The spirits turned tail and ran when we preached. Our preaching was so blessed that we had success upon success. And Jesus says, in this rejoice not but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What he's telling us here is the best way to maintain your joy as you serve the Lord, whether you're an official minister or a minister among the church, whatever your status, he says the best way to keep your heart right is to keep your eyes on what great things he's done for you in his sovereign grace. Remember, your names are written in heaven. Whether you're ever successful or not, the very fact that you belong to him is reason to keep going. The very fact that he saved you and given you an understanding. Blessed are your eyes, he says in verse 24, which see these things. There have been many people who've desired to understand what you understand right now. I want to tell you, dear friends, this is our motivation to keep going. 
It's a wonderful passage. Maybe if I ever preach this passage again, I'll spend less time on the first three points and hit the best point of all, the fourth one. But this commission to the 70 has much to tell us about the purpose of the gospel. That's what I said. And I want you to notice the gospel is not going to be received by everyone. And he's going to teach us at this last section that the reason it's not is because God has hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed it unto babes. For even so, Father, it seemed good in thy sight. In his sovereign grace, God has opened the eyes of some, but not the eyes of all. I want to tell you, somebody says, we need to evangelize to help the Lord save sinners. Why would Jesus, if that's true, rejoice in his spirit and say, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. It doesn't make any sense if the gospel is the instrument of eternal salvation, does it? That Jesus would be thankful that some people can't see it. I want to tell you, everybody doesn't understand what you and I do today. But the hymn writer put it well, if he did shine alike upon all. Have you ever thought about that line? If he did shine, if he did but shine alike on all, then all alike would love. God in his sovereignty opens the eyes of some, but not the eyes of others. A lot of it depends on your attitude. If you're wise and prudent, God hides these things from the wise and prudent, reveals them to the humble babe. If you can understand it today, blessed are your eyes, which see. I love.